Hello, and welcome to the December 16th, 2022 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. It's pretty much a certainty that around this time of year, not just coincident with the winter solstice or with the weather, but also with the holidays, that I begin to hear from friends and athletes that I coach that motivation reaches a real nadir and people struggle to stay with any kind of program. Worse, the guilt that comes with that loss of enthusiasm for training seems to have a real impact on their outlook, and this only contributes to making matters worse. Look, I get it, and I'm here to say that not only is this completely normal, it's also utterly predictable. And I'm also here to say that it's okay to feel this way. And I want you to know that you shouldn't stress about these feelings or even feel all that guilty about it because, you know what, it's a healthy part of what I like to call the motivation cycle. And think of it this way. When you first come to multisport, you do so with a sense of curiosity and wonder. As you learn more about it and become more immersed in the community and training, you become more and more enthusiastic, and with that, more and more excited about participating. Through your first year or even years of racing, this excitement percolates along as you learn more about yourself and your limits and continue to break through them. But just like in your training where you have to give yourself time to rest and recover, your mind needs a similar period of respite. You simply can't exist in a heightened state of amped up enthusiasm perpetually. After your final event of a season, be it your first or your 40th, at some point your mind is just going to need a break. And without a next finish line close on the calendar, it's completely normal and I dare say healthy and appropriate for your mind to take that break and back off on the level of enthusiasm and motivation for pushing a tired body that is very much in need of rest. The hard part is for your other part of the brain, what Previous guests of this podcast, Simon Marshall and Leslie Patterson, like to call the professor brain, the analytical part of your brain, to accept this. Your professor brain analyzes the heck out of why all of a sudden you just can't be as motivated as you were just a couple of weeks ago. Why are you not able to find enthusiasm for the training that so recently brought so much joy? And to the professor brain, I say, knowing full well that the professor won't listen, relax, take a deep breath and chill out. It's going to be okay. Dealing with a lack of motivation at this time of year is really as simple as it is difficult, and it all amounts to just giving yourself the grace to go with the flow and recognize that this is just temporary. My advice and personal strategy for dealing with this is to do the following. First, acknowledge that your motivation is low and don't fight it. Part of the reason you don't feel motivated is that you're tired and maybe a little bored of doing the same thing. So mix things up. Take a couple of months to explore different kinds of training. Go ski, lift weights, mountain bike if you can, or go to a climbing gym. Stay active, but do so by exploring different ways to work up a sweat that don't just mean swimming, biking, and running. Second, re-engage in a meaningful way with family and friends that you might have limited or lost contact with when training. We all desperately need connections in our lives, and triathlon, as I have said many times before, is a very selfish pursuit. So take this time of minimal training and motivation to reach out to those important people that you may have benefited less from, and who may have benefited less from you, in order that you might have re-established those connections. That alone will assuage any guilt related to decreased motivation, I assure you. Third, give yourself a timeline to get back to training. For me, the day that I get back to real training is always January 1st. 
though I remain active and continue to train throughout this period from the end of my season until January 1st, it's always at a much lower volume and intensity. But I know that come the new year, it's back to full send. And having that date in my mind lets me be guilt-free with missing workouts now and then through the holidays and maybe not eating quite as well as I would once I'm back to training. Fourth, sign up for events if you haven't already done so and tell people about it. This will add some accountability if you're worried and it reinforces the date that you're giving yourself to get back to training. Fixing a date with an event will definitely get your mind focused. Finally, and I think this is most important, talk to your coach and other multi-sport friends about your mindset in a positive and supportive way. I assure you, you are not the only one feeling this. But you might be surprised to know that, because shockingly, us type A triathlete people are less than excited to admit such weaknesses publicly. So here I am, set an example for you to do the same with your squad. I, personally, am feeling very unmotivated right now, and I don't even care. Why? Because I know that it's normal, it's transient, and it's a healthy part of my cycle to getting me where I want to be again come race season next year. Already, it's mid-December and I find myself looking at the calendar again. I know January 1st is creeping up and I'm actually starting to feel pretty excited about getting back to it. Just allowing myself to not think about it and to just get unmotivated for a couple of months has really been helpful. So embrace this period of low training and motivation and just go with the flow. The quicker you accept it, the less guilt and stress you're going to feel and the easier it's going to be to come out of it on the date that you set to get back to it whenever that might be. On the show today, I'm going to look at the science that has been published on a very relevant, persistent, and truthfully quite annoying problem for runners everywhere, and that is the side stitch. This seemingly benign problem has been the bane of runners everywhere for time immemorial, and yet, little is really known with any degree of certainty about what causes it or how to prevent it. Well, recent research has emerged to suggest that your mental state might have something to do with the development of this enigmatic pain in the side, and I'm here to give you an overview of everything that we know about side stitch, as well as this new research that suggests in part it might have something to do with your head. And that's coming up shortly. After that, I'm really excited to share a conversation that I had last week with the very recently retired voice of Ironman, Mike Riley. Mike has, of course, been the popular figure at the finish line of Ironman events for more than 30 years, and his signature call has brought home tens, if not hundreds of thousands of athletes. Well, this past weekend's Ironman New Zealand was his final event, and I had the great fortune to chat with him before he left about his career and what comes next for him, and that's coming up a little while later. Before all of that, I want to take a moment to once again thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast, including the newest subscriber, my longtime friend Art Ruiz, who has decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, he could sign up along with others to support this program and in doing so get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month. Most recently, just such an episode came out with an additional conversation between me and coach Jim Vance, who was heard back on episode 106. In our bonus conversation, we talked about how Jim manages an athlete like Ben Canute, who will be a guest on an upcoming episode, to victory at the highest levels, even when he has a season hampered by illness and injury. For North American subscribers at the $10 per month level of support, I also have a special thank you gift in the form of a pretty cool Boco Tri-Doc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash Podcast and become a supporter so that you too can get access to these bonus episodes and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, I thank you in advance just for considering. 
At some point or another, we've all been there. We're out for a run on a gorgeous day along our favorite route, and things are going great. Our pace is where we want it to be, our legs have seemingly boundless energy, and we are just clicking along. Then, like some uninvited guest at a dinner party intent on talking politics or religion, that familiar stabbing sensation under the ribcage rears its ugly head. Uninterested in the gloriousness of the day or the state of your legs, the side stitch intensifies to the point where you just can't stand it any longer and are forced to stop running. After a time, the stitch abates and you start running again. But, much like the uninvited dinner guest, it will not take a hint and it continues to be a major annoyance, ruining what was set to be a spectacular workout. Science has been aware of side stitch for just as long as runners have, and even has a fancy name for it, Exercise-Related Transient Abdominal Pain, or ETAP. Alas, far from the much cooler and frankly awesome wireless shifting technology developed by SRAM, this ETAP is much more of a downer. Yet, despite possessing its own acronym and a wealth of research into its causes, the actual etiology of ETAP remains very much a mystery. While most everyone has experienced ETAP at some point, not everyone suffers from it to the same extent or even the same frequency. In a pretty comprehensive review article on the subject from 2008, Morton and McAllister, the two acknowledged leaders in this field, summarized their findings on the subject. They have found that young athletes are more significantly affected by ETAP than older ones, and that there is little to no effect of gender. Well-conditioned athletes are also less likely to experience ETAP than are those who are less fit, and the intensity of ETAP differs with the type of exercise, being worse with running, less in swimming, and much less in cycling. The most commonly accepted theory to explain side stitch is known as the parietal peritoneum theory. The peritoneum is a highly innervated layer of tissue that encloses the abdominal cavity and has two layers, the visceral and parietal layers. The parietal, or outer layer, is adherent to the diaphragm and the abdominal wall, and when irritated, causes abdominal pain. The side stitch theory posits that the running motion specifically causes stretch on the parietal peritoneum that causes such irritation and then leads to this kind of pain. Unfortunately, there's no really great evidence in the form of experimental research that can either prove or disprove this theory, but it remains the single best explanation for this vexing problem. My interns and I found an interesting study out of Iran, of all places, done in 2017 that offered some of the best physical evidence in support of the parietal peritoneum theory. In this experiment, researchers observed the running form of 26 different athletes, all men unfortunately, although I guess that isn't all that unusual given the research was done in Iran. At any rate, the researchers found that running form was strongly correlated with the development of side stitch or ETAP. Specifically, runners who have more up and down vertical movement or who hold their bodies in a more crouched position when running are much more prone to side stitch than are those who run with a more erect posture and who run with less bouncing. In the crouched form runners, and in those who have more vertical displacement, you can envision that the internal organs of the abdomen, specifically the liver, that is the largest solid organ, ensconced as it is directly under the diaphragm on the right side, are subjected to more forces that result in their being jostled, and this can irritate the parietal peritoneum and cause the side stitch. 
Additional evidence to support this theory include the effects that the timing of eating can have on the development of side stitch related to how blood flow can be diverted to or from the parietal peritoneum, as well as to how stomach distension can impact tension on this membrane. There is also some evidence that supports that not only when you eat is important, but also what you eat can play a role. A study back in 2004 showed that consuming any type of fluids prior to or during running could lead to the development of ETAP in runners, but that those fluids containing higher amounts of sugar were most likely to have this effect. This is likely explained by the fact that the fluids with more concentrated sugars cause an osmotic effect where more water is pulled into the gut, making the stomach and intestines heavier and therefore more prone to movement with running and exacerbating the tension on the parietal peritoneum, thereby increasing the pain associated with side stitch. A final piece of evidence, not so much in support of the parietal peritoneum theory, but pointing away from an alternative theory that was once postulated, that being that side stitch is caused by the cramping of muscles in the ribcage or the abdominal wall itself, comes from a 2008 paper that showed when runners have side stitches, there is no increased electromyelographic or EMG activity in any of the muscle groups in the area. In other words, muscle activity or cramping is not the underlying cause of pain in ETAP. While the parietal peritoneum theory has gained acceptance among many researchers, it is by no means still viewed as the true answer. Various inconsistencies with this theory has led to alternative explanations. Why, for example, do some runners never get side stitches while others get them all the time, no matter when they eat or how they run? How is pace related to development of side stitch? Why do more experienced runners seem less inclined to developing this issue? Well, various other etiologies have been postulated and investigated, including diaphragmatic ischemia, stress on the ligaments that tether the abdominal organs like the liver or spleen, and effects on the gastrointestinal tract itself. And to date, none of these have proven to be completely satisfying as an explanation for the development of side stitch, and certainly none well enough to displace the parietal peritoneum theory. More recently, another possible cause has been suggested and explored by researchers at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. In a paper published in the Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine, the authors investigated whether psychological factors could be at issue with the development of the side stitch. The reason they thought about this was because research published in 2017 reported on how mental status could impact the development of gastrointestinal issues in runners. Nowadays, I think that we all have a sense of how our brains and gastrointestinal tracts share a connection, but the strength of that connection continues to be elucidated. In this particular paper, an even number of men and women, all of whom ran a fair amount, were tracked with respect to the quality of their mileage, their stress levels, and the amount and severity of any gastrointestinal symptoms that they experienced while running. Over and over again, the authors found that those with higher stress levels reported more gastrointestinal symptoms. Now, GI symptoms are not the same as ETAP. But the authors of this 2017 paper suggested that if stress could play a role with GI symptoms, perhaps it also has a role in other running-related ailments, and that led to this study from Old Dominion. The authors in this particular paper surveyed 168 runners recruited from running groups who were posting on social media. Participants were asked a series of questions related to demographics, running behaviors, and history, gastrointestinal issue, both related to running and in daily life, side stitch issues, and a host of questions designed to assess psychological stress levels and sleep quality. 
From the surveys, the authors found that 40% of participants experienced side stitch, with no difference between men and women. Despite abundant research that demonstrates that non-athletes have an association between a lack of sleep and the development of abdominal pain, no such association was seen in this study. That is to say that runners who reported lower amounts of sleep quality were not predisposed to side stitch when running, despite other papers in the past that have found such an association. Similarly surprising was the finding that pre-existing GI issues were also not associated with side stitch. Those runners who reported having daily stomach issues or who were susceptible to developing stomach issues when running were no more likely to report side stitch than were runners who did not have stomach problems when running or in life in general. The one thing that did have an association with the development with side stitch was anxiety and stress. This was true regardless of runner age or level of experience. Across the board, higher levels of anxiety and stress was associated with higher likelihoods of developing a side stitch. Now, I mentioned earlier that there is a lower prevalence of side stitch in more experienced runners, and this was seen to be true in this study. More experienced runners, as well as older runners, were much less likely to have side stitch than were inexperienced and younger runners. However, even amongst those who were older or more experienced runners, higher levels of anxiety and stress was seen to be associated with higher levels of reported side stitch. Now, there are a couple of caveats to note when considering the results of this particular study. The first is that it's based entirely on survey responses, and as I've said before, this is not the most robust data upon which to base specific conclusions. Indeed, there's no way to use such data to establish causality, only association. In other words, we can't say based on this study that anxiety and stress cause side stitch, only that they are associated, and that is a very big difference. The second caveat is equally important, and that is that there is not yet a suitable explanation for how exactly anxiety and stress could actually cause side stitch. In other words, in order for this causality to be established, such a biological premise would have to be identified. Still, in the absence of such a premise, given the findings of this study, we shouldn't really discount this possibility outright. We've seen time and time again how the mind can impact the body, and this may very well be just one more example. So the next time you're out for a run and start to feel that old familiar pain in your side, consider the possibility that it has less to do with anything that you're doing physically and that it may be a state of mind. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, I hope that you'll email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. Alternatively, you could drop it into the private Facebook group that we have established on that platform. Just apply to be entered by answering a couple of really easy questions, and I will grant you access so that you can drop your question there. My guest on the podcast today is the one and only Mike Riley, the official voice of Ironman worldwide and a member of the Ironman Hall of Fame, the USA Triathlon Hall of Fame, and the Running USA Hall of Champions, the only person to have been inducted to all three. Mike has also done on-site announcing and television coverage for over a thousand other triathlon and running events in 10 countries. In October 2022, marked his 33rd appearance as announcer of the Ironman World Championship. He's called 202 Ironman races worldwide, and his iconic call of, and I'm not even going to do it justice here, but <laughs> you are an Ironman, has been heard by over 300. 50,000 finishers, including me, 
three times. He is also the author of Finding My Voice, a series of deeply personal vignettes illuminating how profoundly the sport of Ironman touches both its participants and its fans. Of course, you likely know that Mike has decided to retire from his announcing responsibilities at the end of this year. And so while his signature call will no longer be heard in his classic intonation, his presence will be felt forever at finish lines around the world. I'm really, really honored to have Mike join me today on the TriDoc podcast to talk about some of the highlights of what has been an incredible and storied career. Welcome, Mike. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Jeffrey. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mike, I have a lot of questions written down here, and I was thinking about it this morning before we came on, and I, I think what I actually really want to know is who is Mike Riley? I know that we all know your voice, we all know your persona from seeing you at finish lines, but who is Mike Riley to your wife Rose, to your children? Who Who is the man behind the voice? I'm the husband that sometimes doesn't have a lot of patience. I'm the father that uh, learns more from his kids than I think I teach them. I'm the papa, the grandpa, the two beautiful boys, eight and four years old that are life. And I'm a, I'm a friend and advocate and mentor. And I just, you know, I, I, it, that's a hard question to answer for yourself. I, I think they all see me as someone that is loving and caring and, and puts family first. And I read on your site something that I didn't realize that you were a middle school teacher before all of this began. Yeah, that's how I got out. I got my degree in education from the University of Toledo. I had a, a couple of degrees. I had K through eight and then a high school uh, certificate. But I came out to San Diego. I graduated in June, came out to San Diego, and I was teaching special education at the junior high level here in San Diego. And how did... How did your passion and intertwining with triathlon come to be? Well, when I moved to San Diego, I mean, I thought I was in shape, and I went to Balboa Park. I, I met up with a uh, – uh, he, he was my dentist, and he says, hey, I'm a runner. We go to Balboa Park, which is the large city park here in San Diego, every Wednesday night at 5 o'clock. Why don't you come run with us? And I had wrestled in college, so I ran a fair amount to cut weight, you know, all that good stuff, and and – but running, you know, three miles was like running 33 miles in, in my mind. So we go, I meet him at the park. I said, oh, yeah, I can run. You know, I run. And after I got done wrestling, I went from like 155 pounds to 185. So I, I show up and I, there's seven or eight guys and there's a, a, a woman in there. And I'm thinking, what is she doing here? And we take off and she's leading everybody out. And we're going on a six-mile cross-country run through the park, up and down like this. I I thought I I thought I died twenty times on that run. <laughs> I uh, my my goal was just to keep him in sight, which I did, and I stayed as close as possible. I got done. I, I just couldn't believe the fire in my lungs. She just kicked everybody's butt. A, a year later, she took third at the Boston Marathon. That's what type of running she was, and I didn't walk. Jeffrey, I didn't walk for, I swear, three days. I, I thought I had, I was walking down steps, you know, the old, that, you know, when you, after a marathon trying to walk down steps. And, and it was a six mile run. But I went back, I go, it's pretty cool. And that's how I got involved in the uh, endurance business r right away here in San Diego. And when did you meet and begin your affiliation with uh, Bob Babbitt? 
Oh, gosh. We were both teachers here in San Diego, which is ironic. But I think I first met Bob probably in, in 80, you know, the early 80s, late 70s. We were doing mini triathlons down at Fiesta Island uh, off uh, Mission Bay here in San Diego. And I think I met him there. Then we just had this friendship going. And then he started uh, working for Running in Triathlete, Triathlete News, a magazine that he started writing for. And and it just, we were in the same same arena. And he was building a business and, and I was getting into the uh, uh, rep business. I quit teaching school. My brother and I opened up running shoe stores. We closed those after about three years and I became a rep. So I was repping lines like Power Bar, like Saucony and, and uh, going around selling the wares to uh, accounts here in Southern California and Arizona. And Bob was doing the magazine thing. So our paths were always very parallel in endurance. Tell me about your first announcing gig. How did that come to be? Where, where was it? And, and how did it open doors to future events? Well, the only place we really had events in San Diego was down at Mission Bay. There was a there was a certified 5K course, 10K course, 15K course, all that good stuff. There was a 10K and I was going to run it, but I had a bad hamstring. But I went anyway because I had buddies running it. And this was in like 78, 79. And the race took off and the race director, she looked at me. She goes, what are you doing? I go, oh, I got a bad hammy. She goes, oh, my goodness, I've got this stand-up megaphone speaker this microphone, and I was just going to announce names. Here's a printout of the list of names. And it was, uh, <laughs> if anybody knows, it was a dot matrix printout you know, with the, whole, <laughs> the holes at the end with the uh, folded sheets. And uh, it was about 350 runners. And the first thing I thought of, I go, oh, my gosh, I can, I can give a hard time to my buddies when they come on in. I'll be on the microphone. I thought it would be so cool. But then, Jeffrey, I started calling people's names. Like, you know, Jim Brown, Sue Smith, and congratulations. And I just was telling them what I'd like to hear at a finish line after I ran a hard race, uh, just to be congratulated. And I saw people's reactions like, oh, and, oh, that was cool. Thank you. And then you come up after me, hey, thanks for saying my name. And I go, wow, this is, this is all right. And, and that's kind of, that, not kind of, that's how it started. Where was your first Ironman that you announced? Oh, that was Kona, 1989. That uh, was like that was like being called up to the big leagues. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you called? You are an Ironman. Who who was it for? I uh, I didn't say that in '89 and '90. In '91, I met a, a friend of mine from here in San Diego. I ran with him on the street on Lee Drive, and he was really nervous and all had this negative attitude. And I go, Dan, what's wrong with you? I, I don't think I'm going to have a great race. Last year I had a great race. This year I don't think I'm as good as shape and stuff like that. And I said, you're in great shape. I run with you and, you know, you're in great shape. Well, the day before the race, I saw him checking his bike in and he had the same attitude. You know, ah, Riley, I know you tried to perk me up, but it didn't work. You know, I'm, I'm really nervous. And the last thing I said to him as he was taking his bike into transition, I said, Dan, don't worry. You'll be an Ironman. I actually pointed at him and said, you'll be an Ironman. And he goes, yeah, yeah. So when race day came, I didn't see Dan get out of the water. I didn't see him at the hot corner. And all of a sudden, I spot him coming down the Lee Drive. You know, back then, we, we had no spotters. I had binoculars looking for people to come in, trying to read the number, you know, to read it off the, sh the sheet. So I see him, and I said to the other announcer, I got this guy. 
So when he came in, I said his name, Dan Trone from San Diego, California. And it was like me just putting it in his face, Jeffrey. I said, you are an Iron Man. Like I told you so, you know? <laughs> and after I said those words, he pointed up to me. I pointed to him and, and the crowd, this roar came about. And I'm thinking, they don't know who the heck Dan is. Why are they cheering for him as loud as anybody? And then it kind of hit me. So I said that for the next person, I called him an Iron Man. And I said, yeah, to myself, they are an Iron Man. That's what I'll... Yeah, that's that's what I'll say to him because I, you know, I've always said congratulations, job well done, you know, all that stuff, and and I never thought of late awake at night trying to think what I'm going to say to somebody at the finish line. It just came about to Dan Trone from San Diego, a buddy of mine that I called an Iron Man because I told him so. But then I kind of knew I had a whale by the tail there, and I said, all right, everybody is, and the crowd reaction confirmed that for me. When you look back over such a long career, I know you've written a whole book about some of the the fond memories, but are there any particular things that kind of stand out when you think back now as you're kind of just on the cusp of retiring that you are really kind of warm the heart, if you will, or, or, or not necessarily sentimental things, but maybe things that you just remember back on that being seminal moments for you? Well, I remember all the finishes to the ones I've been very close with over the years, like my son, my number one call I've ever made when I brought him in in 2013 in Ironman, Arizona. My son-in-law then does Ironman. My brother-in-law, who married my wife's twin sister, and we've been together since eight years old, when I called him an Ironman. Our best friend's son, who we were there at his birth when I called him an Ironman. My niece, my godchild, uh, two years ago in Wisconsin, and I brought her in. So those are ones I'll always remember. And then there's close friends over the years that knew what I did. And, you know, all of a sudden, 15 years later, they're doing an Ironman and I'm bringing them in. So we've got a close-knit family network here in San Diego. So when any, anybody I've worked out with or rode bikes with or partied with and brought them in. And then the ones like being able to bring in Mark Allen, who we've—I oh, wasn't as close to him then as as I am now. He's a dear friend now. We've we've grown together over the years, and and uh, to know that I brought him in back in the day is very special. Vicky Jones and and uh, Chrissy Wellington, you know, I mean, all those great pros that I've brought in, I've become friends with, and so those are the those are the special ones. But you know what? For the age groupers, there's not one over another. Each one is the most special because their life as an individual is their life. And it's the most precious thing they have. So for me to be able to say those words to them and put that exclamation point on a part of their life that they've been uh, striving for is has always been an honor. Well, it's really nice to hear you say that because, uh, as you know, so many age groupers have pursued that finish line in the hopes of hearing your call. And so it's really nice to know that it has as much of an effect on you as it does on them. I'm curious, I always wonder about this, having been to so many Ironman competitions, uh, both as a medical volunteer, as a spectator, and and then, of course, as a participant. Uh, I've always been impressed, not just with the people who are so fast at the front, but also with those who come in late. And I'm curious, uh, from your perspective, 
is there anything about the the competitors that you note that you know are you are you more impressed with the people who come in first or or are you equally or more impressed with the people who come in towards the back end i'm more impressed with the perseverance i'm more impressed with the i'm not going to quit attitude uh of the people that are out there a long time the last year 2019 when uh yeah 19 when jan ferdino won the race. He came back to the finish line, putting medals on all the finishers. Here he is, the goat, the world, the best. And <laughs> he's standing next to me. And this, this uh, woman came in around the 16, 10, 16, 20 mark struggling. We uh, brought her in. I was down, you know, at the finish line then for that last uh, final hour. And she comes in and Jan puts the medal on her. And then he's standing next to me. He goes, uh, I don't know how they do that. I go, well, how they do what? How can someone stay out there that long and be on their feet? How can they do that? Here he is, the fastest person in the world, one of the most talented athletes in awe of someone who's pushed themselves through 16 plus hours. So I, I like Jan, is, uh, is impressed and in awe that because you can you imagine the longer you're out there and the more the thoughts go through your head and the thoughts have gone through your head, Jeffrey, as they have everybody else. Why don't I just quit this thing? What am I doing? Uh, this bad patch is going to beat me up. And yet those that are out there 15, 16, 17 hours are pushing through those mental negative thoughts of quitting more than anybody. So that's what impresses me. The perseverance, the resolve, the attitude to not give up and, and the biggest lesson in life they can teach all of us, finish what you start. Yeah, I love that. Uh, I had asked uh, my listeners in our private Facebook group about uh, whether or not they had questions for you. And I did get a couple. So uh, one of my listeners wanted to know if there are any specific venues that uh, you really enjoyed more than others. Yeah, there are. I, I'm glad they didn't ask what's my favorite Ironman. <laughs> because that that standard answer is the one i'm at i would never i would never discount any iron man because i'm telling them one's a favorite over another but places to go like placid the the adirondacks in upstate new york that's always a very it's like going home it's like going on vacation when i go to lake placid i'll miss that one uh iron man new zealand which uh, I will finish up in December at Ironman New Zealand. That's all that that venue and that uh, country and those people are are precious. They're it. They treat you like uh, a, a brother, sister, a, a child. It's it's perfect. Uh, the other ones, I love uh, going over to Cork to Ironman Ireland. Even though it was a rainy year, the one I went, but it's Ireland and that's my heritage. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I love that Madison for a city. A city Ironman, Madison, Wisconsin, uh, Ironman, Wisconsin, and Ironman Mont Tremblant. Uh, that's a gorgeous place, and and uh, the people there, French Canadians, are special. They have a lot of passion, and and I love going there. So I, there are venues I'm going to miss uh, because of the places they're in, and obviously, you know, Kailua Kona. What can I say? There's there's no words you can put the. In, in, what what that place is and what it means to me. 
Well, since you bring up Kona, um, I think uh, it's worth addressing. Now, we're recording this the day after some rumors have broken. I, I don't think that this will get released. Uh, well, I know this won't get released for a little while. So the rumors will have been either confirmed or denied by the time this comes out. But uh, let's assume the rumors are true. Um, uh, what are your thoughts about what Ironman is uh, thinking about doing for the World Championships? I don't really put a lot of heat in rumors uh, uh over the years can you imagine how many i've heard yeah because everybody always seems to kind of come to me like right afterwards thinking i'm i'm sitting in the executive office at at the company which i am not so i like you read the same thing and i don't think anything about it until there's an announcement i uh uh, if people ask me my thoughts of going one place or another, I'm not, I'm not on the business side of that business. So for whatever reasons, if a decision is made like that, that's their business decision. Uh, but it, it's not for me to talk about mainly because I just don't like discussing rumors because that's just what they are right now. That's fair. That's fair. I think, uh, I, I've been, a proponent on this program about making a similar kind of change uh, because I think that it would benefit uh, Ironman in the long run. I love the rotating 70.3 World Championships, having attended so many around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to race in Kona twice, so certainly my perspective of the idea of moving the race from Kona is different from somebody who's never been there, so I, I, I will acknowledge that. Uh, I do think that... Uh, it was difficult this year uh, with uh, as many people as there were on the island, um, but um, I can certainly respect both sides of uh, the argument, and I guess we'll see. Like you said, right now it's just a rumor. We'll see what comes of it. Uh, I'm curious, um, what went into your decision to retire now? You're still obviously very young and youthful and <laughs> full of life and vim and vigor, so uh, what uh, made you decide that now was the right time to Well, there uh, you go. Stop there- there you go. That's the reason. I mean, friends say to me, I, back in the, you know, even a few years ago, Riley, you're going to go forever. And, you know, already in my head, I'm thinking, well, I'm not going forever. Then they'd laugh and say, you're going to be going when you're in a wheelchair with an oxygen tank next to you. You're screaming out, you are an Ironman, you know, and, and part of me goes, you know, I, I, I don't want to get to that point. I want to, I want to walk away from the game when I'm uh, healthy and I'm feeling good and I can still do. A, there's a lot of doors in my life that still are, I want to open and things I want to do. I don't want to go through the cycle of I was gone a lot for my son and daughter. You missing birthdays, missing anniversaries and things like that. And the sacrifice they made with with grandsons. Now, I don't want to, uh, you know, keep that cycle up. It's just to do 12, 13, 14 events a year, plus other travel that I do in between, plus vacations, family. You know, it's a long time being a lot of hotel beds during the year. And and I just want to be home more. I want to take trips to places we've never been to and do things like that. So I, I just felt, Jeffrey, it was just, it was just right. At the time, it was just right. You know, people say, well, just go one more year. You know how many times... I could say to myself, just go one more year and all of a sudden I'm 90, I'm 80, 80 yeah. years old. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't want to get into that. And, and it is taking longer for the voice to recover. I noticed that a few years ago before the pandemic, it was interesting. I'd come home and 48 hours later, it, it, 
it recover after the pandemic. It was like four days, five days. I don't know if because I didn't announce only a couple of times during 2020, did anything to the voice, but it's just taking a little longer to recover. So I, I just, and my body's a little more beat up. I'm not in my forties anymore. So it's just, it's just, it was just time. I think that um, you are just like any other professional, be it a professional athlete or professional announcer, whatever you want to say. And it's always best, I think, for someone like yourself to leave when, leave on your terms and then maybe question whether or not you did the right thing, as opposed to staying on too long and have everybody else question whether or not you should have left earlier. So I, I applaud you for, for doing what uh, you think is right and doing it at the time that makes sense for you, despite the fact that everybody else would, would much rather you stay. And uh, good for you, because like you've said many times, life is short. You only get one go around at this, and you have to make the most of it in every sense of the word. And I, Yeah. I, and you know, Jeffrey, you hit it on the head. I'll watch other people, whether it's a baseball announcer, a football announcer, or anything, watch them on TV, and I, and I, I see them slip or slur words or... I'm going, man, they've been at it a long time. And, and I don't, I, I wanted to be my last call to sound as crisp and loud as my first call. And I didn't want that to wane. And I know if, if I'd kept going, it, it, it could wane. And I, w- I would not want to be sitting there knowing people are saying, Jesus, Riley, walk away. And you're right. My terms is, is everything. So besides, family time besides all of the things that you didn't get to do maybe with your kids that you're now going to do with your grandkids what's next for mike riley will there still be an affiliation of some kind with the triathlon or are you just cutting ties and just gonna do your own thing and we will have your book and all of the recorded versions of your voice to remember you by or, or will you still be around triathlon is in my blood it's been in my blood since the late 70s Endurance sports is in my blood. I'm not going anywhere. I the, my podcast, Find Your Finish Line, and will be going strong through all of next year and beyond. Uh, I I've got things like I'm going to the Endurance Exchange Conference to connect and network with people there. You know, there's there's a lot of things and uh, I can do in this business. Whether it's sit on a board for a company, give advice, mentorship. I've sold a lot of product. I've done a lot of things in the business and, and I don't want to, just cause I'm stepping away from the microphone doesn't mean I'm stepping away from, from triathlon and the sport because it's what I love. So I don't exactly know what it looks like in the future. I've got a lot of good ideas as some of my close associates also have. So we're looking down those paths and people are talking to me. So you never know where I'm going to end up, but I'm not going anywhere. I, I have an inkling of maybe book number two and I've been write, writing quite a bit on stuff like that. So stories come my way constantly because people have always, Jeffrey, people always have wanted to tell me their story because they know if I can, I'm going to get it out there. Uh, or just to be able to know their backstory when they finish an Ironman race. And that's what I really hope anybody that picks up a microphone, does the work, does the preparation, finds out about special stories so that uh, they can talk about them. Uh, and and I'll, I'll continue to do that. 
And you look, I mean, you've been around the, you've been around Ironman triathlon now for 30 something years, I think, or even longer. Long time. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about the, what's going on in the pro ranks? It's incredible. Watching the, the, the professionals race at Kona this year was just to me, mind boggling. I mean, I was, I was in the second to last wave going out with the men and mm-hmm. I was at Waikoloa when they were, when they were. just hauling <laughs> butt coming back the other way. And I just, it was mind blowing to me. And I've had a chance to speak with Tim O'Donnell recently. I spoke with uh, Brent McMahon and a couple of others. And it's it's really quite amazing to speak to people who are in the pros and, and hear their perspective on this. I'm curious, you, you've got a real good, I think, long view on this. What's your insights as to what's going on in the pros? Is this just a reflection of just a whole new up and coming generation that's training and racing differently? Or is something else going on? It's definitely a new generation a new generation that is not hanging their training hat, their racing hat on the past generation. They, they look at the past generation as their foundation. They're in awe of the ones that have, you know, won the major championships throughout the world. But they believe that those numbers are numbers that can be shattered. I, I think, you know, it's that old mind over matter. We went through, uh, obviously, with Mark and Dave, and the, well, how they raced in '89, and then some of the fantastic races by Craig Alexander and setting the course record, and 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 then Marinda Carfrey coming along and shattering the women's run record. But then all of a sudden there was a lull. There was like seven, eight years. Everything was around the same until Patrick Langa from Germany finally broke the long-standing run record of of Mark Allen and Dave Scott when they ran in 89. And it was these big gaps. But I think this generation's going, you know what? There's no limit. There's no ceiling. There's no ceiling in their training. There's no ceiling in their racing. And there's no ceiling at all that they want to be able to uh, outdo the others, almost in a camaraderie respect. They they love racing with one another and they fuel off each other. So, uh, and if you talk in particular, the Norwegians, that's fantastic. But you look at Ben Knut's performance at the 70.3 world championship. You look at Chelsea Sodaro, the first American woman to win that race since 95. And I, I my gosh, I, I think what it, what it's done is because of those performances, others are going, I can get there too. So I, I love it. I absolutely adore it. And uh, the sky's the limit with them. Who knows how fast they're going to be able to go in the future. But they, and plus, they've figured out how to race hard in very difficult conditions. Sam Long at Ironman Coeur d'Alene in 2021. Uh, no, was that 20? Yeah, it was yeah, 21. Tw- yeah, 21. It was like 105 degrees. Everybody's getting shattered out there. And he... He's flying through it like it's a midsummer 70 degree day and he sets the course record. I go, how do you do that? And it's by them thinking they can and they're not going to be limited. I, I, so I think it's very good for the sport and I think the future is very bright on the professional side. I do as well. I, I feel very much the same as you do. I think it's the thing that's going to keep this sport going 
because there are more and more young people that are being drawn to what they're seeing from the pros. I know that there's this ongoing kind of discussion about uh, whether or not the PTO is in a position to supplant Ironman in some way. I I feel like you do that uh, those could coexist and that Ironman is Ironman. I mean, especially the race in Kona, that's going to be something that's never going to, the world championships is just never going to be it's just too it's too ensconced in triathlon lore, I think, to to really be replaced in any way. But it's going to be interesting to see how things play out in the future. Uh, I, I'm very glad to hear that you will remain a part of it, even if your voice won't. And uh, I am incredibly thankful that you took some time to sit down and chat with me today. Mike Riley, the author of Finding My Voice, of course, the voice of Ironman for 33 years, now retiring. He will be doing his last race in December at Ironman New Zealand. Thank you so much for joining me on the TriDoc Podcast. You're welcome, Jeff. But I'm going to give one quick plug. My rally towel. I've been rallying around with this thing since the mid-90s. This one's about 10 years old. I'm auctioning it off at the end of the season. Actually, it's... The auction's going on right now at ironmanfoundation.org. Check out charitable auction. I think it's already up to like seventeen or $1,800. Uh, you've seen me swing this at every race in the world, and, and I still do it, and I'll do it in New Zealand. And then uh, somebody's going to have that at, at their house, not my house. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to put a link to that auction. I'll put a link to Mike's book and as well as Mike's website in the show notes for this program. And you could find all of that there. Mike, again, thanks so much for being here. You got it, Jeffrey. Aloha. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns, I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the TriDoc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at TriDocPodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.